Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. Have you ever been to a protest before? Have I ever been to a protest? Um, technically, yes. Mm-hmm. I went to one in high school. Okay. It was a pro-life protest. Oh. Yeah. Hi, how are you? Uh, something, a protest I would not go to today. Right. That is not my ideology on that. Yeah, obviously. Um, I know you very well. So, that would be the big bombshell secret of our friendship. Oh, <laughs> wouldn't it? But um, no, it's... Uh, no, I did. And um, yeah. Um, well, you, like I, were raised very Catholic. So. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Things I thought were a good idea at the time. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's no, I would not. Certainly. I would go, I would go to a pro choice protest today. Right. Yes. Correct. Yeah. And what about you? I do remember doing, it wasn't so much of a protest as it was like a call to action. Like I remember when John Kerry was running against George Bush, which I was in college in Philadelphia. And so I remember standing on the medium of Broad Street with like signs to like, you know, encourage people to vote. Like it might've been election night. It's a very foggy memory to me. But um, more recently I was, I did attend the Black Lives Matter protest in my hometown, which has a little bit of a dodgy history when it comes to, um, Racism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was really great. I felt really safe there, especially if you're listening to this in the future. Um, These protests obviously happened during COVID-19, but everyone there was very respectful. Everyone was in a mask and everybody was socially distant from one another. That felt a lot more real than the participation that I took in college. But other than that, that's really been my only type of protest that I've been to. I personally do plan to attend more. Right. Things I'm looking to participate in. Right. And I, you know what? Specifically regarding Black Lives Matter. And I think whatever you can do regarding that, you know, some people can protest. Some people can't. Some people don't feel comfortable in that environment. You know, it's a right that's given to us. Um, We're going to delve a little deeper into that today. But um, it really is something that you have to feel is within you to do and you have to feel is right for you to do. You really can't have anybody else make that decision for you. Welcome to Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. Today's Trail Mix is all about protest in the national parks system. 
That's correct. I'm Mike. And I'm Dusty. A protest as defined by the dictionary is a public expression of objection, disapproval, or dissent towards an idea or an action, typically a political one. Unaddressed protests can grow and widen into civil resistance, dissent, activism, riots, insurgency, revolts, and political and or social revolution which seems like we are currently living through. Sure. Um, and, you know, like as Dusty said, we are going to talk a lot about protests today, but we're going to talk really specifically about protests in the national parks um, and how MPS's role with protests, whether it was by hosting a protest or by honoring or recognizing a site that was important to protest and the fight for civil liberties, we're going to be kind of dissecting that and kind of looking at that today. So people protest for all sorts of reasons. Their history is nothing new. Um, In fact, they can at least be traced back to Imperial Egypt with a sit-down strike of graveyard workers, which is something that Um, When I was doing the research for this, I found really interesting. Obviously, they often seek to change the sentiments, policies, and opinions of those in the majority, those in a position of power, or those who can make things happen by swaying the public through typically peaceful action. There have been many noticeable protests and marches throughout history, and many have actually occurred on NPS sites. But before we're able to talk about those protests, it's important to give some context on protests in our country and why we as citizens have that right available to us. Which essentially takes us back to the birth of America, or modern America, what we know as America currently. While the right to petition was guaranteed to all British citizens, the right to assemble was not a guaranteed right. It was a right to assemble that allowed the spark of American independence to grow into a revolution, which set the nation free from the British. America was a nation born out of British rule. While these protests weren't always peaceful and property and lives were certainly lost, the protests galvanized colonial citizens into action and eventually revolution. Perhaps that is why the right to assemble was an important part of the First Amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees this right. The First Amendment states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. But that right to protest isn't absolute. In fact, there have been scores of Supreme Court cases that have further defined what it means to peaceably assemble. And that doesn't just include protests, but also picketing, parades, marching, and assemblies. These court cases, these Supreme Court cases, also outline fees and permits and the parameters for what is acceptable. Andrew M. Winston, who's a legal reference librarian at the Library of Congress in 2014, stated the following. The Supreme Court of the United States held that the First Amendment protects the right to conduct a peaceful public assembly. The right to assemble is not, however, absolute. Government officials cannot simply prohibit a public assembly in their own discretion, but the government can impose restrictions on the time, place, and the manner of peaceful assembly, provided that constitutional safeguards are met, end quote. So essentially, even though the right to assemble is guaranteed to us as citizens, Uh, a permit is usually required in advance in order to ensure that constitutional safeguards are being followed. Depending on the type of protest, its location, and its purpose, additional requirements in order to assemble may be made. So think about curfews and or the blocking of traffic or streets. All these things are typically discussed and applied for ahead of time. Because of the significance of many NPS sites in the history of America and the history of democracy and democratic practice in America, protests have been an important part 
of not only the history of America, but of the national park system itself or the national park service itself. Therefore, the national park system offers visitors the opportunity to engage in demonstration activity while also managing the activity in order to protect park resources and NPS values. NPS has a set of guidelines in place which may include permitting for the event. If the event is happening in the District of Columbia, Maryland, or Virginia, a different regulation applies. As with most protests under the First Amendment, just like a local government, NPS can regulate certain aspects of the First Amendment activities, including time and place, and the manner in which the activity is conducted. Each park site has a designated area for these activities to take place within. You can find more about these areas by visiting a specific park's website or emailing the park directly. Under the Plan Your Visit tab on each individual NPS site, there will be a spot for basic information, which will typically lead you to information on permitting. As long as you are not over a group of 25, not planning on using a stage, sound system, or structure of any sort, a permit is not required. If a permit is required, fees may apply and the park can either approve or deny the permit based on a variety of factors. So having all that context allows us to talk a little bit more about protests at the national park sites. We're going to highlight four places managed by the MPS where major protests have occurred. Uh, While some of these protests relate directly to the site where the protest is occurring, others use the site because of either its prominence or its location in America and the American cultural landscape. The first site that I'm going to talk about is the Independence Mall and the gay liberation protests of the 1960s, otherwise known as Reminder Days, which took place several years prior to the Stonewall riots from 1965 to 1969. So every July 4th, these protests of gay and lesbian citizens and their allies would take to the Independence Mall in Philadelphia, site of Independence Hall and other buildings and relics in America's fight for independence from the British, and demand the public take notice of the discrimination faced by gay and lesbian citizens. They cited that not all Americans enjoyed the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all tenants guaranteed in the Declaration of Independence. The protests were organized by an alliance of several organizations, including the New York City and Washington, D.C., Mattachine Societies, the Janus Society of Philadelphia, and the New York City's Daughters of Belitis. As a collective, they were known as the East Coast Homophile Organizations. They had a strict dress code for these protests, men in ties and jackets, and women in dresses, which was important to the organizers to show that gays and lesbians were not only presentable, but employable. After Stonewall, which happened the same year as the last um, Reminder Day, the organizers instead focused their efforts on the Christopher Street Liberation Day, um, the first of which was held on June 28, 1970, to commemorate the uprising at Stonewall. This has since morphed into a modern-day Pride event, um, which is the New York City Gay Pride Parade. While Stonewall was a big leap forward for the LGBTQ plus civil rights movement, the Reminder Day protests were the first step forward of bringing these issues to the public consciousness. They also helped to provide a structure and a primer for the LGBTQ plus civil rights movement. The next site that I'll talk about also saw several years of long protest, including occupation. That site was Alcatraz. Although it was yet to become an MPS site at the time of the protests and eventual occupation, it wouldn't become one until 1973. This protest bears mentioning 
for several reasons. The island of Alcatraz had a history of a fort for the U.S. military and a prison for the Department of Justice. But to the native peoples of the San Francisco Bay Area, it was also important. Based on an oral history, it appears that Alcatraz was used as a place of isolation or ostracization for tribal members who had violated a tribal law. It was also used as a camping spot or um, an area for gathering food, especially bird eggs, sea life. And that Alcatraz was used also as a hiding place for many Native Americans attempting to escape from the California mission system. There were actually three separate protest occupations on Alcatraz. The first was in March of 1964. It lasted for several hours and was led by a small group of five Shichangyu Lakota, led by Richard McKenzie and his wife, Belva Cotier. This occupation is significant because it demanded for the use of the island for a cultural center and a Native American university. The next protest and occupation happened on November 9th, 1969. Protest was organized by Richard Oakes and several young Native American students from the Bay Area, which claimed the island for all Native American tribes. After leaving that evening, they realized that a longer occupation was perhaps needed. On November 20th, 1969, the longest of the protest occupations happened, lasting for 18 months. Many of the same demands from the 1964 occupation of the island were made to the federal government, turning the island into a cultural center and a Native American university. While this protest occupation did eventually stop, it called attention to the situation of Native peoples in the United States. This protest and all of the protests that followed helped to generate new laws and the return of the land to various Native American tribes, including the Taos Indians. Another important protest occupation by Native peoples was at Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. Like Alcatraz Island, there were multiple occupations of the space, and each of these occupations lasted for several months, once in 1970 and once in 1971. It's important to note that these occupations and protests were to highlight the indignity of the Native peoples and the broken promises by the U.S. government toward different tribes and tribal nations. To understand the eventual occupation of Mount Rushmore is to understand that several sacred lands were consistently preserved by treaty for Native peoples and then just as easily systematically taken away, as white settlers moved into those territories, typically for gold or other important resources. In the Sioux Treaty of 1868 and the Treaty of Fort Laramie, the Sioux were granted autonomy over all of South Dakota's land west of the Missouri River. Six years after this treaty was signed, the U.S. government violated it when General Custer led an expedition into the Black Hills, which were regarded as sacred to the Lakota Sioux. Miners who found gold in this area demanded the government protect them from the Sioux, and the government took the land back in 1877. Later, Calvin Coolidge approved the creation of a national monument to four important presidents, utilizing one of the Black Hills, named the Six Grandfathers, named as such for the Four Directions, and the Earth and Sky. This again flagrantly abused land and sites sacred to the Lakota Sioux. The mountain was thus renamed Mount Rushmore, of no cultural significance to anyone other than an influential white businessman who was well-connected to the area's mining industry for whom it was named. Adding insult to injury, the Lakota Sioux and other Native peoples turned to direct action. In 1970, 23 activists climbed the 3,000 feet to occupy the top of Mount Rushmore, which they renamed Crazy Horse Mountain for several months. 
Here's a direct quote from United Native Americans President Lehman Brightman in 1970. We're sick and tired of sitting back and turning the other cheek, and then bending over and getting those other two kicked. You're going to see some wide-awake, educated Indians. We've got some new Indians coming up, new warriors. This is a breeding ground right here. You're going to see a lot of spark, end quote. Later in 1971, 40 activists with the American Indian Movement climbed the mountain in order to demand treaty recognition. Unlike the 1970 protest occupation, this one ended in 20 arrests. In 2012, a UN report declared that the Black Hills, including Mount Rushmore, should be returned as Native American tribal lands. James Anaya, a UN representative on the rights of indigenous people, had this to say about the return of the land. Quote, Land restoration would help bring about reconciliation. That restoring to indigenous people what they have a legitimate claim to can be done in a way that is not divisive, so that the Black Hills, for example, isn't just a reminder of the subordination and domination of indigenous peoples in that country. End quote. And now we are currently looking at another protest that just recently happened at Mount Rushmore. Right. So on July the 3rd, our president was um, having basically holding a, an essentially a 4th of July celebration style rally at Mount Rushmore. Native American protesters essentially blocked the roadway to the monument in the hours that were leading up to his speech at Mount Rushmore. The South Dakota National Guard was called in. Um, the group of Native Americans refused to disband. And so the National Guard shot close range shells at their feet and sprayed some protesters with pepper spray. And some people were also arrested um, at this protest. Talking about everything that we've talked about before and giving the context to the monument, it really is important to understand why this protest happened and to basically have this event from a president who doesn't care about immigration, doesn't care about people of color or black people, doesn't care about gay people. I'm sure that Native American rights aren't far behind on the things, uh, the list of things he doesn't care about. To have this event here, it really was a slap in the face to the Lakota Sioux who hold this space and hold this land sacred. Some other context about this land. In 1980, the Supreme Court ruled that the United States had illegally taken this land from the Sioux tribe in a deal that was made in 1873. The Mount Rushmore carvings happened in 1941, mm-hmm. or they were completed in 1941. Right. The federal government offered the Sioux people a settlement of $1 billion for taking the land, but the tribe refused, and they said that they would only accept their land back. Which the plot thickens because... If you have been paying attention to Supreme Court cases, the case that was just ruled in Oklahoma regarding the east side of Oklahoma might make us revisit this Supreme Court case from 1980 and And something else might come up about it again. Right. And, you know, is this land deservingly returned without any strings attached, which A, the answer is yes, of course it is. And B, though, is the federal government going to just give it up, essentially? Or is the state government just going to give it up? Which I'm sure that's what the people of Oklahoma are grappling with now, um, because our forefathers and foremothers did some pretty shady things. Yes. Right? Yeah. The history of our nation, ladies and gentlemen. History of our nation. Right. Reasons why we protest. Right, exactly. And, you know, we read the quote 
earlier, I read the quote earlier from the special UN report that said basically the return of the land is the thing that should be happening and essentially restores the indigenous people to that place that they have a legitimate claim to. And it will help to bring about some sort of reconciliation, which I'm sure is what is going to happen in Oklahoma, but we will just have to wait and see as those developments unfold. The National Mall's significance goes without saying as a set of NPS sites which has had scores of protests over the years. While the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963 brought a spotlight on the mall as a national stage for national protests, other protests utilized the mall and its strategic position much earlier. On March 3, 1913, Over 5,000 women marched down Pennsylvania Avenue to demand voting rights for American women. In November of 1938, a group of local Washington women protested the removal of the cherry trees from the Tidal Basin to make way for the Jefferson Memorial. On October 6, 1943, 400 rabbis marched to persuade the United States to rescue Jewish victims of Nazi genocide in Europe. In 1957, there was the Prayer Pilgrimage for Freedom, which asked President Eisenhower's administration to force states to comply with the 1954 Supreme Court decision in Brown versus the Board of Education desegregating public schools. And then there are sites that the National Park Service has recognized for their significance and the relation to protest and the history of the country. Here are some of the sites that seek to recognize this history, which are managed by NPS. So the first of which is the Birmingham National Monument in Birmingham, Alabama, which relates to the 1963 civil rights leader, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who organized nonviolent protests in the city to take a stand against race based injustice. There's also the Stonewall Inn in New York City's West Village, which commemorates the uprising that happened in June of 1969, which propelled the gay rights movement and gay liberation into history. There's the Pullman National Monument, which is in Chicago. Pullman cars were basically rail cars. A. Philip Randolph, which if you listen to our Pride Mix on Bayard Rustin, who's mentioned, was someone that was an African-American organizer, and he organized the first African-American labor union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, at the Pullman Company. So this national monument represents that. There is the Port Chicago Naval Magazine National Memorial. This memorializes a moment during World War II. During this time, uh, Navy ships were segregated. All of the black officers of the military stayed at port and had to load the ships full of weapons and ammunition. And this was an instance where these officers received very little training, and it was very tedious and dangerous work. But in July of 1944, while they were loading Navy ships, with weapons and ammunition. 5,000 tons of munitions exploded, killing 320 people and injuring hundreds of others. Two weeks later, the sailors were ordered to return to their work and 258 of them refused and 50 were court-martialed and found guilty of mutiny. So this memorial memorializes that protest to not work in those dangerous conditions. That protest did, in fact, helped to lead to the desegregation within the U.S. Navy and subsequently the rest of the armed forces and was part of 
the larger civil rights movement. There's the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad National Monument and Historic Park. Um, Harriet Tubman was a slave who escaped in her slavery in 1849 and worked to bring about 70 other people to freedom through dangerous missions in slaveholding states prior to the Civil War. This site is located in Maryland. There is the Cesar Chavez National Monument, which is the first national park site devoted to a Latinx American, and he is the co-founder of the United Farm Workers of America. He was an activist who fought for the rights of farm workers, particularly immigrant farm workers, to be paid fair wages, provided health care and pension plans, as well as demanded proper and supportive working conditions. And there's the Selma to Montgomery National Historic Trail, which is a 54-mile route of a series of three civil rights marches in 1965, where hundreds of participants risked their lives uh, demonstrating for their right to vote. And this is located in Alabama. As always, we encourage you to do your own research on each of these protests that we just mentioned, as well as each of the sites that MPS manages that relate to the history of protest in some way. There is certainly a lot of history to unpack with each of these sites and each of these protests. And the more that we can learn about them, the more that we will understand not only their significance, but also the significance of protest in the history of this country. Most of these sites speak to the civil rights of specific groups, most of them marginalized in one way or another. The right to protest afforded these groups the right to stand up and let their voices be heard, to shift the course of their history, and to shed light on policies and practices that were unfair and unequal and unequitable. The protests that are happening currently are part of a rich tapestry of people exercising their right to expose injustice and make change. This movement, like those that have come before it, won't rest until change occurs, nor should it. Whether you can physically be a part of the Black Lives Matter protests, or you can work to exact change through a different role, be it a helper, an advocate, or organizer, do your research to better understand what these protests are about and why they matter not only for Black citizens of the United States, but for the country as a whole. Our sources for today's trail mix include nps.gov, the National Park Conservation Association, mallhistory.org, colorlines.com, constitutioncongress.gov, and the Library of Congress. And now, let's end this trail mix with a game. All right, we're playing Complete the Pro today. Right. So how do we play this game, Mike? So I'm going to give you a definition of a word that will start with the word pro. So for example, the exclusion of selling alcoholic beverage would be? Prohibition. There you go. So it's going to work just like that. I'm ready. Okay. So the size relation of one thing to the next. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I got you on the first one. You got me early. What is proportional? Oh, proportional. (laughs) Okay. 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 Um, Spreading misinformation about something. Pro isn't always going to sound like pro. Uh Is it propagate? Yeah, propaganda. Propaganda. There we go. Yeah, that's right. Okay. How about something that is completely ludicrous or insane? Preposterous. There you go. (laughs) Um, If something is able to invade or seep into something. Oh, I don't know. Let's proliferate. 
proliferate. Mm-hmm. Um, if you stand at a lectern for your job every day in front of a bunch of co-eds, you are a professor. There you go. Um, and if I am able to create something for the first time that I want to then model a lot of other things off of it, it would be called a prototype. That's right. Um, if I was really lazy and I had a lot to do, but I, you know, I'm going to just keep putting it off on procrastinating. That's correct. Um, and if I am someone that is really on the ball, I'm not conservative and I really am pushing for lots of rights to come out, I would be described as this politically. Progressive. That's correct. And that's pro, what do we call it? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I forget, what did we title it? I don't know if we titled it anything. We did. And that's Complete the Pro. This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, visit our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gazeatthenationalparks at gmail.com. And to find out more about the parks spoken about on this show, go to our website, gazeatthenationalparks.com and that's gaze g-a-z-e all original artwork featured on our website and on instagram is by michael ryan all original music was written by dave seaman and performed by dave seaman mariella klinger and sean scleos our music producer is skyler fortgang this episode was edited by dustin ballard (laughs) 